Welcome to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Atlanta. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. It's another flower hour. Jeremiah, Jerry, Jer. Now I have a new one because when your mom was on, she said Jer, which I thought was adorable. Uh, Jer is the definitely the one that everyone calls me, especially my family. And I learned yours, Amanda Beth. <laughs> so Southern, two names. You know, we love like the long announced name, you know, Amanda Beth. <laughs> is, is your middle name a Beth type name? Elizabeth, yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I used to, you know, like when you're a kid and you think, well, maybe I should go by something else. I always thought maybe I could be a Lizzie. Am I a Liz? And then Liz Fair was really popular. And I'm like, oh, I should so be a Liz. But it didn't it didn't catch on. So still Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how are you? What's going on? I'm doing well. I did something really fun yesterday that kind of made me think. Um, I had a friend, an acquaintance. She's now, I would definitely say now she's a friend, but that wrote me and she does branding photo shoots and asked me if I would be interested in that. And I thought, sure, let's do it. And then from there, she sent me some instructions to prepare for the photo shoot. And we kind of discussed, you know, she does all different people and brands and not always bakers, but she was saying, you know, make sure to have something around that represents your brand. And I thought, what the hell is my brand? I don't know. Like, what is my brand? And we've talked about this before, after being on the show, people would ask us these kinds of questions. It's like, I'm not a brand. I'm a person. Thank you very much. But, you know, uh, putting anything, weirdness aside, I do have a business and I have, you know, an internet presence and we do flower hours. So there's something, whether you call it a brand, it just sounds really pretentious to call it a brand. That's why I stay away from it. But I would confidently say I do have a baking brand. I would feel comfortable going that far, but I was like, what is it? Because so much of the baking that I do is for the business or it's for, um, sponsored posts or it's for, friends or it's for the family or it's just what I want to eat. But as far as like what's important to me as a baker from a brand perspective, it was really fun to think about it that way. And the reason I wanted to share it is I thought no matter what kind of baker you are, whether you're doing it professionally or just for fun, I think it's a fun question to ask yourself, like what defines you as a baker? Maybe what are you good at or what is important to you? the flour, local ingredients, all natural, or is it chocolate all the time? I don't know. So um, I just kind of started thinking about those things. And then in collaboration with the talk that I had to do for, well, not I say had to do, I really wanted to do it, that I got to do for the Cherry Bomb Magazine event here in Atlanta, the topic I was given was the future of baking. And a lot of the questions, um, well, I asked, I asked on Instagram what the future of baking was and what that meant to people. And I heard a lot about dye free. That's very important to me too. Yeah. So for my branding shoot, I made sure everything was dye free 
And then you, I know you and I, we both talk about fashion occasionally. Yeah. And I, to kind of come up with the brand, I almost had to distance myself from baking. And I started thinking about clothes and I'm like, I'm just not a fancy formal person. I love well done things like things made with a lot of pride and care and, and careful, but casual. So everything I made was very casual. I did an interesting I have to get that word in there too. (laughs) (laughs) I love classic combinations with peanut butter and jelly and chocolate and things like that, but not in what I would consider a predictable way. So can I tell you what I made? Oh, please. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I could have made things endlessly, endlessly, but I only had so much time. So of course I had to have one experimental thing in there. I made a vegan cake, which this was the best test so far, you guys, but that's a whole other tangent. Oh, the flavors were strawberry and matcha, which are great flavors if you're trying to do dye free because the color comes through so beautifully with both of those. And then I made some cupcakes, which I used to kind of turn my nose up at because I was like, such a bake sale, like mommy kind of thing to make. But I've really become really fond of cupcakes, actually. If you do them with really special flavors, I think they're a great forum to test out new ideas versus making a giant layer cake. Speaking of being modern and what's the future, food waste is an issue that we have to think about. And so if you're testing, cupcakes are much smaller. It's easier to make smaller batches of cupcakes. And so um, they really kind of come into play and in, in something that I would say is part of my brand. And so I did blueberry frosting, which made a really beautiful color with ginger cakes, which I used fresh ginger, um, which a long time ago, you and I chatted about, should I do granulated or fresh? And I did fresh back then and I haven't looked back. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's so special. Oh yeah. You influence me every single day, Jeremiah. Um, oh, it's same. And then I did two different kinds of pavlovas. I did a chocolate vanilla swirl pavlova that I topped with peanut butter whipped cream and chocolate candies. And then I did a strawberry uh, pavlova base meringue and then topped that with orange whipped cream and all sorts of different fruits. Anyway, so that's what I did. But I think it's a fun question to think about. Hopefully anybody listening is thinking if you were going to do a branding shoot for baking, what would you make? I'd love to hear your answers. Send them to Jeremiah or me and maybe we'll find a way to share that too. But Jeremiah, what is your baking brand? What would you make for your branding shoot? I'm putting you on the spot. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's interesting that I love that question. It's really fun. It's really fun to kind of distill what are, what are you about at a certain period of time? And I think for me, it is kind of about time. And right now, my my brand is a lot about Portugal and about my heritage. And so it would be probably a lot of those things. But I, I, I don't want to just be that. Um, I want to be, I'm more than just that side of myself or this, this, this time period of focusing on Portuguese desserts. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I kind of like, while you're asking me this, I'm thinking a lot about our interview with Talia Ho, which was so inspiring. And she talks a lot about, you know, got kind of secluding herself to really find her artistic voice and her vision and potentially probably she would say her brand or what I would call her brand. And I kind of would echo that. I feel like if I could spend enough time kind of 
sequestered away in this, in like I imagine a cabin somewhere with a great kitchen in the woods <laughs> or by the sea, I would come up with it. But I kind of know this is kind of a crazy word to use, but I love the word pagan for so many different reasons. It's kind of a word that's kind of shocking, probably for some people, but I love that it's a word that's for me, it's really connected to the earth. Um, it has a lot of meaning, potentially a sense of spirituality of connected connectivity. So I would love for my brand to reflect that in some way. And that's, that's kind of a dream. And it makes my, you know, I don't know, it gives you all those feelings of inspiration. I don't know what that would mean. Um, but I'd love for if my, my brand to kind of move in that direction, that would be kind of inspired by nature. And I don't know. Now I I know know your second book. First a Portuguese book, second, Baking Pagan. Pagan pastry. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Interesting. Okay, any specifics? Like what is a pagan pastry? Tell me what pops to your head. I don't know. Maybe it's in the styling of it. Yeah. Maybe it's in the combination of ingredients. Like flavors or... Yeah, maybe things that are classic but yet feel ancient i love the the juxtaposition of ancient and modern i've always loved that like if i could design a room i would love really ancient artifacts with like super high like futuristic modern things kind of put next to each other so maybe it is like a really old ancient medieval recipe but you know styled in a and garnished in a really modern futuristic facing way um i'm a huge huge fan of bjork um, she's probably my, my absolute, um, artist that I look to, to in so many ways. And so she, of course, is always combining nature and technology. And I am, I'm all about that and kind of how do we move forward in the world, um, with, with, uh, using nature as, as a collaborator and as a, as a source of inspiration. And I mean, it's, it's this character that, you know, has created us and we need to always, be um, respectful and innovative in how we approach nature. Anyway, so it'd be something Bjorkian for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to see what you come up with. So hopefully in the future, you'll go to the cabin and and work this out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's fun to dream. And then you're like, okay, I have these great ideas. Now, how do you make that crystallize into something delicious and, you know, visual? So I, I, I hope someday... Maybe I'll be an old grandpa, but maybe I'll achieve that. I think you will. If that's what you decide to do, you certainly will, sir. Well, speaking of achieving things, one of my, um, I would say one of the most eye-catching cookbooks I've come uh, come across in a long time is The Artful Baker. And it is by our guest today, Jink. His blog is Cafe Fernando, super famous blog filled with beautiful recipes and stories to go with it. Um, I've been reading this and enjoying it for a while, but to research, to chat with him, I just kind of poured myself into it the other day. And it's, it's similar. Like we just talked about Talia, not similar in the writing, but I would say similar in the heart that goes into it. It's just a very unique and special place on the internet. Uh, but that's his blog. And like I said, he also wrote The Artful Baker. Which is a beautiful book if you haven't checked it out. And what's so cool is he wrote, styled, 
photographed, and designed the book. And he didn't self-publish it. This is some a deal he worked out with his publisher that he would control and produce all areas of this book. So when you hold this book, it's truly the vision of Jank. And um, his love and his vision is 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 there in in um, paper paper form or digital form if you choose to go that route. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it totally comes through that having all the different touch points for him. I think it definitely comes through that it's a highly personal manuscript. So I'm so excited to talk to him. Let's bring Jank on. Jank, welcome to Flower Hour. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on. We're so excited to talk to you and learn, I'm sure, learn lots of interesting things from you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So as all things, we'd love to know how you got started with baking. Um, Right after I graduated from college, I moved from Istanbul to San Francisco for my MBA degree. Um, I used to cook in college, but now I was both studying and working at three different jobs at school. So... I had no time left for cooking, which was completely okay because um, there were so many amazing food choices around me and it seemed impossible to exhaust the options. Um, I hadn't baked a thing in my life before I moved back to Istanbul from San Francisco and it was in 2003. I missed the food I enjoyed in San Francisco and it was impossible to find even a decent brownie back in Istanbul. Um, So I took the matters into my own hands and started baking. Wow. Oh, fascinating. I love this thought because for me, Istanbul is so exotic and foreign and far away. I love the idea of you there, like hunting around for a decent brownie. (laughs) 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 Yeah. It reminds me too. So I went, I did my undergraduate degree in San Francisco and that's when I started baking. And that was Mm -hmm. literally around the same time I started my undergrad in 2002. So I guess you were doing it back in Istanbul and I was starting it then in San Francisco. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Now, at what point after you started baking, did you start your blog? Was that kind of um, later on in the process or shortly after? Uh, it was shortly after, maybe six months or a year after I started baking, I started my blog. Now, I read on your blog uh, the inspiration of the name, but I'd love for you mm-hmm. to share that with our listeners because I love it so much. Sure. Um, actually, to answer this question, I have to go back to my uh, first day in San Francisco. Um, my student visa had arrived only 10 hours before my flight departed. So I was quite stressed out when I got on the flight. Back then, there were no direct flights, which meant you had to take a two-leg, 20-hour flight. Right after I landed, I had to check into the motel and go straight to my school for the orientation. On my way back to the motel, I got lost and spent hours walking. By the time I was back in the room, it was midnight and I was completely drained. I took a shower, threw myself on the bed and turned the TV on and... There they were, four familiar faces, eating cheesecake in their kitchen and listening to the story Sophia was telling. Um, I was thousands of miles away from friends and family, and everything felt unfamiliar. But suddenly I was filled with comfort and warmth. That was the beginning of my Golden Girls obsession. I had watched the show before, um, broadcast on Turkish national television and dubbed in Turkish, of course. 
Um, but I, now I was hearing Blanche's southern accent for the first time. Um, I didn't remember how the government station had translated the dirty jokes and plot lines surrounding Blanche's sexual escapades. <laughs> but I felt like I was finally watching the real thing. From then on, there hasn't been a single day that I haven't watched the show. Um, as you can tell, I'm a huge fan of the Golden Girls. And ever since I had learned that my favorite character, Rose Nyland, um, had a one-eyed teddy bear called Fernando, I had wanted to name my future dog after it. But I never got a dog, and my blog was the next best opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that so much. Jeremiah, did you ever watch Golden Girls? <laughs> this is so funny. Um, my parents are very, very, um, what's the word? They're conservative in the way that they raised me. And so mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to watch the Golden Girls when I was growing up and so now yeah i should actually sit down it hasn't crossed my mind to like go back and watch all the things i missed when i was a kid but like it's like also the music of the 80s i never got to listen to it so like you know i am a child of the 80s but i never anyway that's a whole nother story but yeah i need to sit down and learn what i missed what i'm missing I watched it, but later on, like as an adult, and I love Blanche. She's my favorite, but she's, you know, Southern like me. And I just think she's so just wild and wonderful. So very inspiring. There's the recipe named after her in my book, actually. Really? Yeah. I think I saw it. Is it the, is it the tart? Am I remembering? Yes. <laughs> it's a fruit tart, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I just think she's so amazing. Just a wild woman, you know, and, and at yeah. an older age, which is kind of cool to see something that you don't always see. But Well, tell us yeah. about the tart. What, what's, how is it inspired by her? Well, let me um, read the introduction, the head note, and you'll understand. I just had to name this timeless tart after another. Golden girl, Blanche Devereaux, who once said, like the fatal blossom of the graceful Jimson weed, I entice with my fragrance, but can provide no succor. Except this time she does. Well, yeah. of course, she's the most beautiful golden girl. And um, this tart is actually a beauty and a classic one. So I just wanted to name a recipe after one of the golden girls. And this was the best opportunity. It's a great homage to her, for sure. Yeah. So as you were saying, you're a self-taught baker, and it's hard to imagine because everything you do is so ambitious and professional and, and inspiring. Um, can you tell us about how about that journey, and then what do you do when you want to learn a new technique, or how did you how did you grow into your skills? Um, well, I study the works of my baking heroes and heroines. I learned most of what I know about baking from. Um, people like Nick Malgieri, Rose Levy Barenbaum, Dory Greenspan, Alice Medridge, David Leibovitz, and Sherry Yard, to name a few. Um, <laughs> once I get a grasp of the technique, I start experimenting with flavors and make changes, always one at a time, um, to study the effects in taste and texture. After a while, you gain a deeper understanding of the technique and um, make well-informed choices to suit the recipe to your liking. So it's a lot of trial and error. I appreciate the way you outline your process because it sounds very methodical, which is, it's fun to see the artful um, finished products sometimes, but I feel like there's 
a very scientific process that goes into it. Like you said, only changing one thing at a time, like everything else is a control and you're experimenting with only one thing. It's, it's a good, uh, you just did a great way of laying out that process. Thank you. It takes a lot of discipline. I know, I, I think you, that is such a good, so good, such good advice to say only change one thing at a time. And that's yeah. hard for me to do. Like I want to sometimes just change it all and, and it's, but it's really important. I hope our listeners take that um, to heart that one thing at a time is the way to go. Exactly. I'm with you, Jeremiah. I'm super naughty that way. Like <laughs> I'll come up with an idea and I just, you know, I just want to just pull the rug out from under the whole recipe. And, and sometimes that's, what results in the worst baking fails for sure. So much smarter way to approach. <laughs> I have a crazy question that has come up in my mind. Do you, Jane, do you ever bring, like if you're going to a party or something, you're bringing something baked, will you ever bring a brand new recipe, something that's untested or do you always practice before you, you bring something? Well, I used, I used to bring um, a recipe that I've never baked before, but that was, um, at the beginning of my blogging years, but of course, then I learned my lesson. Um, <laughs> now I will ne- I'll never bring a recipe that I haven't tested at least a few times. Um, I just don't like surprises when it comes to baking, and um, I've suffered enough from friends um, who had to eat, you know, really weird things when I first started baking and you know experimenting with stuff. Um, I can recall a matcha cheesecake that I baked maybe um, 10 years ago, probably. Um, it was a disaster, and I wished I tasted it before I brought them, but I learned my lesson, so I don't do that anymore. <laughs> How about you, Amanda? Uh, I mean, you've been to my house. I'm like, hey, I've never made this before. I hope it's good. <laughs> I try, well, but you also saw, like I had kind of when, so when Jeremiah came to town most, most recently for Thanksgiving, um, I, I had a standby, like I had the cake, the chocolate cake, right. I'm like, mm-hmm. this has mm-hmm. very good frosting. The cake is really good. So I'll maybe throw out some experimental things, but I make sure that everyone will at least have one solid option, you know, just mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. a bite of something else and it's terrible, but yeah, I mean, I think if I was only taking one recipe or having people over and only serving one recipe, uh, I would probably had to have made it before or if it was really simple. I mean, or something I could taste. Like I would make cookies or something like that where I could have one, but something that's an entire dessert, like a full cheesecake or a cake, I don't think I would because I would be too, I would just have tons of anxiety and be a terrible host because like, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen when we slice into this, but okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, I would do it because then I could, you know, redo if I had to. What about you, Jeremiah? I used to always, and I was, my, I've always, my grandma taught me how to bake mostly and she was famous for ev- always doing brand new recipes for everything. So I just kind of grew up with that was normal, like the risk, the fun of it. And so I, I did do that for a long time. And then now I usually will practice because I feel like now that, you know, okay, I've developed this sort of, you know, oh, I'm a baker and doing this thing. People are more judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> 
So they're going to tell me and they don't understand like, oh, I'm just trying something out. You know, they're like, oh, I'm going to tell, I'm going to give you a list of what you should have done. And so, yeah, I, I, I like to practice now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Jink, I'm curious, your recipes are so beautiful, but I want to know Thank the you. starting point. Where do they start? What inspires you? Is it, is it cravings? Is it just, where do you start with your recipes? It starts with a lot of things. My inspiration is usually the ingredient itself. Also, I'm very curious by nature. So let's say I'm eating a pistachio paste candy, which is one of my favorite Turkish treats. Um, I immediately start thinking about how I can transform it into a cookie or a cake. Um, by the way, the cookie version made its way into the book, um, and I've yet to finalize the cake version. Um, sometimes I get inspired by a photo. I believe it was in... 2011, Chez Panis was celebrating its 40th anniversary with a series of gatherings around the Bay Area, and I was glued to my monitor, devouring every pixel of every photo from that event. And I stopped dead in my tracks when I saw David Leibovitz's blog post, um, picturing a brush dripping with glaze over pluot slices fanned out on a flaky crust. And it was love at first sight, and with the next morning's first light, I was out the door hunting for plots. Then I came up with a plot galette recipe, which is also in the book. Um, I'm also inspired when I'm faced with a challenge. Uh, the deeply apple apple cake in the book is a great example. I used to have a problem with the intensity of the apple aroma in the cakes I baked. They were all fine, but weren't just apple enough. Um, so I came up with a recipe that has four pounds of apples in it. Wow. Um, it starts by preparing a sour and intensely apple apple puree. And then it continues like a classic butter cake recipe. Um, it takes a bit of time to make, but it's totally worth it. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. My mind is just imagining all of that coming together. Sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> also, I love your precision. Mm -hmm. From the recipes to the photos, um, they're all so precise. Does this extend to all areas of your life? Um, unfortunately, it does. And I say unfortunately because while being a perfectionist may seem like an advantage when you're working on a 400-page baking book, and actually it might even be a requirement, um, it makes my life very hard and even miserable at times because it injects a lot of stress into my life and this book project certainly didn't help um here's a story i haven't had a chance to share on my english blog yet um about a week before i turned in the first chapter of my book to my editor the lower left part of my face went numb it was similar to the numbness you get after the dentist injects local anesthesia into your gums and inner cheek but milder. Um, I first noticed it while I was reading the chapter from start to finish for God knows how many a time and looking for mistakes and inconsistencies. At first I thought I rested my cheek on my palm for too long while reading but as hours passed the numbness didn't go away. I tried not to think too much of it until I woke up the next day and noticed that the numbness was still there. I started to get worried, but the deadline was a few days away, and I was determined to keep working until the very last minute. 
Um, right after I submitted the chapter, I went to a neurologist. After a brief physical examination, he ruled out facial palsy and stroke. And the next were a series of questions about my daily routine and life in general. Um, about 15 minutes into our conversation, he concluded that it was all stress-related. Um, apparently, this is very common among people who have demanding jobs um, and are overly perfectionists. Right now, I'm working towards creating a less stressful life for myself, trying to find that balance. Oh, I wish you well with that. Um, Thank you. I can identify a little bit, and and, and yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, and I certainly hope you find a really balanced place so that you can create the really beautiful things that you do, but then also really enjoy life, too. Exactly, exactly. That should be the objective. Can you tell us a couple of things maybe that you like to do to achieve this balance or that you're trying? Um. Actually, I started meditating and taking very long walks, like two to three hours. It really helps me calm my mind down. I also started painting, um, doing things that include repetition, which calms my nerves down. So let's see if, if they'll help out. I, I wonder if it'll be like a journey, too, where you'll find, keep finding new things and new ways of trying activities that will... Um, elicit this sort of these, these feelings of balance yeah we'll see i hope it will i know for me walking is tremendous like to be able to yeah, go out that, and like you said for a very long time sometimes but that definitely seems to make a difference yeah that that was the biggest help actually i you know i spent seven and a half years for this book both the turkish and the english version um and i didn't leave the house a lot i i was actually you know, um, baking, writing, editing all the time. And now that I have the free time, um, I can take very long walks and they help me out a lot. Now, so I'm curious because of some of these techniques, kind of uh, shifting gears to the pastries. Okay. As far as things like macarons and croissants, sometimes they're very intimidating for people mm -hmm. um, because they're considered really difficult recipes. Could you mm -hmm. share some of the techniques that you use to make those recipes successful? Maybe, you know, some quick, easy tidbits for people who are at home that maybe find them challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, macarons are tricky. Um, as with every recipe that involves meringue, um, conditions a home baker may not be able to control, such as ambient temperature and humidity, can greatly affect the outcome. Um, I developed my recipe to be minimally affected by changes in those conditions and even to tolerate minor mistakes. The key in um, making macarons is to build a stable meringue. It is simply creating plentiful small air bubbles rather than fewer large ones. Um, this is accomplished by whisking the egg whites slowly at first and gradually increasing the speed. And sugar is added only after the foam is thick enough that the whisk leaves a trail as it mixes. And is added gradually after that, allowing the time to, for the crystals um, time to dissolve. Um, actually, this creates a meringue so stable that cream of tartar, the most common stabilizer used in meringue, isn't needed at all. Um, for croissants, butter plays the most important role. First of all, it must be fresh. 
And to check freshness, I shave a thin layer with the tip of a knife and just check the color. If the outside layer is darker than the inside and if there's an off smell, it is no longer fresh and may impart a stale flavor in your pastry. Um, always use high quality, high fat butter. Um, it reduces the risk of cracking during rolling and folding and provides a more even distribution. Um, throughout the lamination process where you um, create these distinct layers made by rolling and folding the dough and the butter block. The dough and the butter block should retain the same consistency. Um, it's easy to gauge the consistency of the dough from start to finish because you can touch it, um, but once the butter is locked inside, it becomes difficult to know how stiff it is. It should be cold but mollable, firm enough so that it doesn't melt, but soft enough to easily roll between the layers. Resting is crucial um, so that it can keep the same consistency throughout preparation. Um, my recipe requires a long rest in the refrigerator while the dough relaxes, followed by a short time in the freezer um, to solidify the butter before each turn. Um, this may differ from home to home and it also depends on you know, um, the temperature of your freezer, um, but as long as you stick to the um, periods provided in the recipe, um, there won't be any problems at all. Oh, I also um, highly recommend breaking the recipe down over a three-day period to work at a more relaxed pace. Croissant, making croissants take a lot of time, and when sometimes you start in the morning and bake until the night, but you cannot bake it right away, you have to enjoy it maybe in the morning, so um, breaking the recipe um, over a three-day period really works best for a home baker. I love that tip because I feel like it is somewhat of an intimidating project, but if you break mm -hmm. it up like that, you know, it's not three days of solid work and then you get what exactly. you want, you know, it's a little bit each day, which makes it a little more approachable, especially exactly. you know, I have two small children and everything has to be broken up into small steps mm -hmm. anyway, because that's just our lifestyle. So sometimes even the bigger baking projects like that are almost easier than something that has to be start to finish very active. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's so worth it because having fresh croissants out of your own oven is just one of those magical moments that only can happen at home. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I want to ask you more about meringue. So I read your, um, your head note about your macaron recipe and about the meringue. And I thought, Oh, this is so fascinating. And so yesterday I was doing a meringue to get folded into a cake batter and I was trying your technique. And so what, so like, so I start. I, I left, so I'm using a KitchenAid and I started mm -hmm. it all like on speed four and I let it go forever around on that speed. And it was fun to watch the bubbles. Like you said, they all stay really small mm -hmm. and a lot longer, but then all oh my, it, like, wow, this meringue is coming together even at the super low speed. Um, is that kind of like what you're talking about, what you're looking for? Mm -hmm. Well, it, I think this is, um, I, I cannot say that this should work or this should be the case with every recipe that involves meringue, but if we're right. talking about macarons where mm -hmm. um, volume isn't the most important thing because you are already going to knock the air out of the batter once you start um, adding the almond flour, um, creating a stable meringue is paramount. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you can sacrifice some volume for that. Of course, beating it at a higher speed will uh, incorporate more air into it, but it will not be as stable. Got it. Um, the difficulty in macarons is most people fail at the um, folding stage, at the stage where you add the almond flour and just folding it with the egg whites. When you have a stable meringue, a couple more um, folds won't ruin anything. Okay, that's, that's helpful. Yeah, but of course this doesn't hold true for every recipe that involves a meringue. Um, but if you need a stable meringue, then this is the way to go. Great. Okay. Okay. So that leads me to my next question. So like, I know for pavlovas, a lot of people recommend going straight on high and then, so could you give me your recommendations of what type of meringue to use for what type? Like we know we need a really stable one for macarons. Um, um, I, always, I always use the same technique, um, but for Paolo, I don't think you need to be working at a low speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will never, ever um, start with the highest speed and just um, continue with that throughout the recipe for any kind of meringue recipe. I think it should start slowly at first. Um, but for a Paolo, you don't necessarily have to wait... Um, the steps outlined in the, my macaron recipe, you can um, increase the speed however you like, but for the start, I would definitely recommend starting at a low speed. And you should have to see a lot of foam before you add the sugar. And the difference, just to make sure that I'm following on, the difference would be that the pavlova meringue doesn't have to be quite as stable in the same way that a macaron meringue would, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Perfect. For a cake, you can kind of be somewhere maybe in the middle. Well, I guess it depends on the type of cake as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I loved reading about your love of ice cream and the idea yes. of watching um, the Golden Girls with uh, mm-hmm. a new tub being deposited on your lap whenever you need it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are your favorite ice cream flavors? Um, my favorite ice cream flavors are chocolate, pistachio, and salted caramel. Delicious. Good choices. <laughs> <laughs> what are your what favorites, Jeremiah? Yeah. yeah, I'm curious. That's a good... Okay, so Johnny Uzzini has this recipe for Thai basil ice cream, and I still think about it. Once we grew a ton of Thai basil during the summer, and it was enough that, you know, you're like, okay, I can... I don't need to hoard this for, you know, whenever I cook Thai food or whatever, and it was just sensational i'll never forget that ice cream um also christina tosi has a great um peach like white peach i don't know if it's sorbet or an ice cream but that anything Mm -hmm. white peach just makes me happy my grandpa has white peach trees so it's a kind of childhood memory what about you amanda Oh, I'm such a kid. You know that. I mean, cookies and cream or like chocolate chip cookie dough. (laughs) (laughs) I love those or something. We used to get this ice cream called Chocolate Trinity and it came from one specific grocery store. I think it was Publix brand, but it was this really rich chocolate ice cream and then it had these little fudge cups in there, like little candies and then ribbons of fudge throughout and I would just take the whole container and like dig out that ribbon of fudge and oh, it is like the best. So basically it's just chocolate on chocolate on chocolate. 
<laughs> Always the winner. Okay, Jenk. So I'm curious, uh, like we said, some of the recipes that you have are very ambitious and mm-hmm. um, uh, just admirable. I'm curious what the most difficult recipe is that you've ever made. Um, actually, I don't like to categorize recipes as easy and difficult. To me, there's no such thing as difficult. As long as you stick to the ingredients, measurements, and equipment in the recipes, pay attention to mise en place, get to know your oven, and trust your senses, and be patient, you can be successful at every recipe you try. Um, So I don't want to say this is the most difficult recipe I've ever made, but some of them take more time than others, we can say. I love this answer. Yes. So yeah. I mean, I hope all of our listeners are like nodding their heads and going, <laughs> yes, you can basically make anything that you want to make. I think there's such a curtain over certain recipes that make them feel so scary or like, oh, I'm not professionally trained, so I shouldn't even attempt that. But it's just not yeah. the case. Like you can really, really do pretty much whatever you'd like to do. You just have to exactly. Fear is the last, Fear is the last thing you need in your kitchen. Yes. It's so true. I'm so glad you answered that way. That makes me really happy. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm dying to go to Turkey. I've always loved food from that area of the world. And can you talk to us about Turkish baking and some of your favorite Turkish bakes? Um, Some of my Turkish favorite Turkish bakes. Actually, there are a few of them in the book. In the cookie section, there's umkurabiyesi literally translated as flour cookie, which is very close to a melt-away. Um, they are flavored with vanilla beans and have a tender texture. There's also pistachio and matcha sables, the cookie version of my favorite Turkish treat, pistachio paste candies. Uh, matcha is quite, of course, foreign to Turkish baking, but I love to combine it with pistachios, and um, those that look for a more authentic flavor can certainly try the recipe without it. Um, then there's simit, our beloved ring-shaped bread encrusted with sesame seeds. Um, People who have ever been to Istanbul must have seen street vendors selling simit from their baskets or trolleys or even from a tray balanced on their heads. Um, The texture is close to a bagel. It has a dense crumb and a faint sweetness from a dip in grape molasses and water before being covered with sesame seeds and baked. Um, There are two versions uh, in the book, sourdough and yeasted. Um, I also love, love, love kakmesh, which is a um, square pastry containing <clears throat> several layers of dough, um, Turkish clotted cream, sugar, and finely chopped pistachios. Uh, traditionally, after you roll out the dough into a certain thickness, you start throwing it around over your head like a bed sheet to make it larger and thinner. Um, the final dough is as Thin as strudel dough. Um, Nick Malgieri has a great recipe in his book, um, Pastry, in addition to several other Turkish baking recipes. And if you guys ever make it to Istanbul, make sure to let me know, um, and I'll give you a personal tour myself. Oh, wow. Be careful, because we love to travel. You never know. <laughs> we might just be hitting you up for this. Yes. <laughs> I hope so. That be great. All right, so we've talked some about your book, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about it. I'd love to hear about what the journey of creating, writing, and publishing the book means to you. 
Um, actually, it was a very personal project for me. Um, I think it is rare that a cookbook author is also the food stylist, the prop stylist, the photographer, and the designer of his or her book. Um, for the Turkish book, for the Turkish version, I also oversaw the whole production process, um, prepared the index, wrote all the press releases and the website copy, and shot and edited two videos for the lounge. And <clears throat> believe me, if I knew how to do it, I'd have printed the book myself too. <laughs> um, this may only mean that I'm a control freak, but I strongly feel that it also means something extra for the reader. Um, people buy cookbooks not only because they offer a well-curated repertoire of reliable recipes, but also for the experience created through stories, images, and design. When multiple people work on a cookbook, um, no matter how much the author is involved during each process, um, it becomes a story told by multiple people. Um, as author, stylist, photographer, and designer of my book, I believe I deliver a more personal story to the reader. Um, there's a big difference between the prop stylist choosing a cake stand for you and hunting for the perfect cake stand on eBay yourself, finding it, um, waking up at an ungodly hour to win the bid, receiving <laughs> it in a million pieces, having it fixed, and finally using it in a photo. Um, I certainly don't call myself a designer at all and don't claim that my book's design is a creative masterpiece, but what's important is that it was me who thought long and hard about every detail, using the official color of the Golden Gate Bridge for the headlines, um, or the icons I designed for non-recipe sections and stories. I don't expect every reader to notice every detail, but I do hope they'll notice how personal this book is to me. I think that definitely comes across. It has a very different um, feeling when you look at it. You can tell, I think, sometimes how close or distant the author is from the project, if that, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it does. For me, too, it, I mean, it definitely gives me goosebumps because it's almost like you've infused a part of yourself into the book in a deeper way. Um, it's almost spiritual. <laughs> like it's, you know, the fact that the colors and the font choices have this deep meaning for you. It's just, I mean, we're really kind of getting to be enveloped in your world around this whole, I mean, it's just, it's really, really inspiring. Thank you. Oh, Wow. Um, what recipes would you like to highlight in the book or encourage, encourage our listeners to try? Oh, my favorite recipe in the book is the sour cherry and almond upside down cake. Um, the sticky sweet sour cherries against the buttery almondy crumb is just pure heaven for me. Um, I prepare a sour cherry glaze with the drained juices and apply it before each serving to refresh the fruit layer. Um, another favorite is the first recipe in the book, Jenks House Cookies. These cookies remind me of the Danish butter cookies my grandmother used to keep at her home. Um, the ones that came in a royal blue tin, separated with ruffled papers, each holding a different shape. Um, it is a buttery almond cookie with a hint of coconut covered with sliced almonds that are toasted by the time it bakes. Um, the last one I'll mention is the chocolate cake on the cover of my book. Um, I named it Devil Wears Chocolate. 
Uh, it may look intimidating at first sight, but it is very easy to make. The cake layers are quite straightforward. The ganache filling is a breeze to make. And the chocolate shards are basically melted chocolate spread on parchment paper, rolled in a tube, chilled and unrolled. Um, it is chocolate from head to toe, and it is guaranteed to impress and delight the most hardcore chocoholic. Yum! <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go. I need to go bake some things, guys. <laughs> and I grew up with those Danish cookies, too, and I can still imagine that blue tea oh, you did? house. Yeah, we'd all, like, pick through. And, you know, you know, when you're a kid, you're always wanting snacks, and we would just tear mm-hmm. through those cookies and, like, oh, no, my favorite one's gone. Now I have to eat the one I don't, you know, but I'm gonna eat it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so speaking of the recipes, so now we've got some listener questions, and one of them is from Andrew Smith from Great British Bake Off. Um, He actually recommended, he has a question, but he also said everyone should make your carrot cake. He said it's absolutely Oh, yes. Yeah, thank you. I thank you, Andrew, if you're listening to this. He better be, yeah. Yeah, better. (laughs) So Andrew said he wants to know what drives you for your perfection. And I think we talked about that some. So he also said it takes 10 times to get recipes right sometimes. And he's curious about uh, your process of how many times. Um, I can't give a definitive answer for that. Sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's 20. Um, There are recipes that I almost lost my mind while trying to develop them, such as the pomegranate jam. Um, And I'm sure there are others that I don't want to remember, but um, it really depends on um, what you crave and what you really want the final product to be. And however many trials you have to do, it's okay with me. I think it's about the personality um, of the baker. Um, I'll never stop. That, that's just me. Um, some people may be satisfied after a few tries, and if it's close enough, then they'll give up. But I'm just usually stuck with things, and if it's not 100% the way I want it to taste, I just keep going. And I'm, I'm never tired of it because I love baking a lot. Um, but of course, as I mentioned earlier, this has a downside too. It's, it's pretty stressful. Um, you have to find a balance between these, you know, this extreme and, um, should I say the normal way to do it? I don't know. Um, it's not always best to do it, but this is me and I, I, I just can't change it. Yeah. You do you, Cenk. I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, what, what your, your temperament for this, I mean, has pr- produced something incredible. So, Thank yeah, you. There, might, there is some... Obviously, there's some suffering that because of that, potentially, and... Um, but, I mean, sometimes our extremes are what produces something, you know, special. So, I think, you know, to honor that is important. I like that you you said that, Jeremiah, about extremes, because I definitely feel like most people, it's true with me, my my best qualities are also the worst qualities. So um, I think, you know, just finding out how to work with those, but accepting them, like you said, it's who you are. So I think that's a really good, good approach, not necessarily changing it, but how to live with it and work with it. Yeah, yeah. Smart. Sometimes you have to learn to collaborate with yourself. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, you do this, you do that, and we'll all be happy. <laughs> okay, so I have another question from, this is from Instagram, and the person's name is Pan Jamie George, it's P-A-N-J-A-M-I-G-E-O-R-G-E, and the question is, could you please ask him what method he used to blanch whole hazelnuts while making his hazelnut caramel cookies? Thank you. Smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I buy them blanched. They're available in every supermarket here. So um, I really don't have to do it. Um, but you usually boil them and then, or even you can even bake them and then um, put them between two paper towels and just give it a good go and most of it will be away. And um, they don't need to look perfect without um, the trace of a skin. So um, I think it also gives some texture and color uh, to the final dish as well. So um, you don't have to be anal about it when it comes to this recipe, but try to find them blanched so it's the best. You don't have to worry about it. Perfect. I've, I've blanched them before or boiled them in water with a little baking soda and then mm -hmm. rubbed the skins and that definitely works. It creates this really creepy, murky black water that comes from the color of the skins, but it really gets most of it off. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that's where I, I get very crazy though. If I feel like a recipe says to remove the skins, like I will lose my mind picking off every little... <laughs> so I like to hear that in this case, we have permission from a master to say, you know, it gives some texture. So maybe just embrace that part. <laughs> exactly. Well, for our favorite flower hour question, if you could bake for anyone alive or past, who would you bake for and what would you bake? Um, I think this is a no-brainer for me. Of course, I make <laughs> chocolate cheesecake from my book for the Golden Girls. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was a better singer. I would totally sing the theme song for you guys right now. But, <laughs> but anybody who wants to hear it and get in the mood, just Google it, okay? <laughs> <sighs> oh, that sounds delicious, and I can imagine it. How fun. <laughs> what a blast you guys would have for sure exactly please invite us to <laughs> yeah oh, i will <laughs> i just kind of want to sit back and watch i'll just eat my cake in the corner <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> well thank you so much for spending this time with us it was a lot of fun thank you guys for having me we really appreciate it. And uh, yes, if we're ever in your area, we will definitely be swinging by and expecting that personal tour. I can't wait. And okay. same if you're in San Francisco, or if you come to Atlanta, we will, we will uh, hound you there too. Absolutely. Perfect. I'll let you, I'll definitely let you know. <laughs> All, right, All right. Take care. Thank you. you too. Thank you guys. Be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you're enjoying your time with us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it.